What is intersectional environmentalism? How can including your cultural background actually enhance the activist work that you do? Activist and eco-communicator Leah Thomas is passionate about advocating for and exploring the relationship between social justice and environmentalism. She was the first to define the term intersectional environmentalism and is the founder of At Green Girl Leah and the Intersectional Environmentalist Platform. Her articles have appeared in Vogue, Elle, and she's been featured in Harper's Bazaar, W, and Time magazines. She is the author of The Intersectional Environmentalist, How to Dismantle Systems of Oppression to Protect People and the Planet. Leah Thomas, welcome to Business and Society and One Planet Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So your book, The Intersectional Environmentalists, How to Dismantle Systems of Oppression to Protect People and the Planet, just won uh, the Creative Force Foundation's award and is an introduction to intersectional environmentalism. Tell us first what that term means for you and why you needed to write this book. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited about the award. And intersectional environmentalism to me means prioritizing social justice in environmental movements and really thinking about what communities are most impacted by different environmental injustices. So, for example, in the United States, a lot of communities of color, Black, Indigenous communities, and also lower income communities struggle with things like unclean air and unclean water, and those are environmental injustices. So I thought it was important to have an intersectional approach to environmental advocacy that doesn't ignore these things and these intersections of identity, but explores them to make sure that every community, especially those most impacted by environmental injustices, no longer are. And I wanted to write a really accessible introduction that was targeted at school kids or anyone who wants to learn more. So that's where the intersectional environmentalist came from. Yes, and it really is accessible, which is so important because, you know, you have to know your audience and you have to listen to them and speak to them where they are. You're working on climate justice and radically imagining a more equitable and diverse future of environmentalism. And we know students of color face major barriers to succeeding, face especially glaring hurdles in the field of environmental science, as they're often excluded from these natural areas and the careers that are tied to them. How are you helping advance opportunities? Absolutely. So I think the first step is definitely awareness. I know when I was the only Black student in my environmental science program, I didn't quite understand why I really wanted to focus on the environmental injustices that were going on in my neighborhood or the concept of, you know, racial justice was always kind of intertwined with my environmental advocacy. So it's something that I want other communities of color to understand that's okay, that you can show up to this field and also, I don't know, have empathy for your own community and that you don't need to separate your identity from your environmental practice and including your cultural background can actually enhance the work that you do because I think it's such a beautiful thing that we all have different identity aspects, whether that's religion, race, gender, etc. So I think that's the first step, making sure that representation is there so all people can see themselves reflected in environmental education and feel empowered to know that they belong and they can take their identity with them and that enhances their environmental practice. And secondly, through the Intersectional Environmentalist platform, we love to platform students who are working on climate justice research and share it through kind of untraditional means. So they might not be published in in a scientific paper, but it's something they can share amongst their peers in our community of about half a million people, etc. 
So it's another way for them to share their research at the intersection of identity and environmentalism to more people. And that's something I really enjoy with our work, just letting people know that, yeah, your work is important. And even if it's not published in a scientific paper, there is a really big community of people out there that are interested in learning and might even relate with that research. Yes, that is so important. We have the climate science, but we also have that engagement. That's a great audience that you have because we don't make any change. If it's just scientists, if it's just us working in our little bubbles, we won't advance change. The colonial legacy, of course, of environmental injustice in the U.S. and U.S. territories are a result of historical, as you know, and ongoing injustices. It's the same all over the world, here in France, Portugal, U.K., and elsewhere. However, we all know the extractive industries are in the business of making money whenever and wherever they can. What makes you feel championing diversity and to uplifting new perspectives from historically ignored people can help change the fossil fuel industry's behavior? This is a great question. Uh, I think it's really important for a number of reasons. One, because it's going to take all of us. And I think there are a lot of even communities of color that are dealing with environmental injustices in their community, like unclean air and unclean water. And they might think like, well, why do I have to take a stand against the fossil fuel industry? Like I'm already living in a community that's struggling with different injustices, etc. Like what does this have to do with me? However, the fossil fuel industry and other extractive industries are typically placed nearby communities of color or lower income communities throughout Europe, throughout the United States and around the world. So I think that is really important that um, their proximity to these marginalized communities is actually causing a direct impact on their health, on their environment, etc. And I would say in addition to that, it's also really important to understand that indigenous peoples around the world protect over 70% of the world's biodiversity, but represent less than 10% of the world's population. So it is interesting and people are like, well, why do we have to bring people of color or indigenous people into the environmental movement? I think it's because one, representation is important, but also there are so many indigenous land management and land stewardship practices that can really inform us on how to better, even in areas that have already been extracted, to nurture the land back to health and how we can have ecosystems that can hopefully sequester carbon and different things like that. So those are just two reasons why it's important to make sure environmental advocacy is as diverse as possible. One, because the people who are experiencing these injustices are more than likely vulnerable communities. And two, it's important to platform indigenous knowledge and land management practices. Yeah, it's so true. You Just the whole relationship to the earth is vastly different throughout most indigenous communities. Even their language of the earth is it's vastly different than what we, the English language, for instance. So, Bruce, you've always been committed to creating sustainability through the HC Group, through uh, the Creative Force Foundation. Why did you choose uh, Leah's book, The Intersectional Environmentalist, to be winner of this year's Creative Force Award? I'm really pleased that Leah accepted. We have six judges. Two of them own bookstores. Two of them have published hundreds of thousands of books. And so I think they chose her for three reasons. And my wife and I, you know, supplied the money. We didn't make the choice. First, Deeper than accessibility, her writing is coherent. There's a smart brevity to Leah Thomas's work that you find in the best books. It, it's not a complicated or indirect argument. It's a coherent argument. And we were very pleased, you know, when she comes up with the facts, like 70% 
of the ecosystems that need to preserve, be preserved are currently inhabited by indigenous people, even though they're only 10% of the population. So the second reason I think Leah won the award was because she can both offer facts, but because she's so coherent in her writing style, she offers the higher context of those facts. So take, for example, asthma or the heat island effect. Although when people in business look at me, they see a white, elite, educated Caucasian. I grew up in an interracial family, as you know, Mia, where I had Puerto Rican brothers and a Chinese Suyang Chang sister. And on page 88 of Leah's book, it really struck me how she was speaking to my brothers and sisters. She talks about how 71% of Afro-Americans live in countries that are in violation of air standards, that 78 of Afro-Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired plant. She talks about how 36% higher rates of asthma than whites. So it's true. I went on to become a competitive basketball player. Both my Puerto Rican brothers suffered asthma, one when he returned to Puerto Rico and another throughout his life. By chance, my college roommate at Cornell University was also on scholarship. And Kevin was an Afro-American from the province who died in his early 50s. So many of my Caucasian classmates, we still get together in our late 60s. Uh, I am writing a piece about a man who's 98 from Harvard Law School. You know, so longevity is denied, just like breathing is denied to some of these people. The last fact on page 88, to give you all a sense of the coherence of higher facts in her book, when you look at the historically redlined neighborhoods, not only in America, but in other places of prejudice, they are up to 12 point degrees higher than non-redlined neighborhoods, creating what we now call the injustice of heat island effect. So Leah Thomas's work is a work that broadens the base of environmentalism, adds social purpose and impact to it. It's not something that's ideologic. It's a fact-based order and book. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I think it's kind of a testament to how I've navigated throughout my career. Sometimes when I talk about environmental justice, I'm really passionate because it's impacting, you know, my community. And oftentimes people, well, throughout my career, I've had to kind of have a bucket of facts to make sure that people understand, again, this isn't just my personal opinion and really root it in the science and the facts and putting them in the book so people know. Again, like you said, this isn't just something that's a theory that I have. This is rooted in fact. And yeah, it's kind of a testament to how I've shown up and how I think a lot of even scientists of color sometimes show up trying to demand justice in their communities. So always having that fact and then always having the personal experience intertwined. And that's what motivated me to write the book. And Mia, I want to let you know that I was also moved when the judges isolated her book for me by pages 38 and 39 for those many students that listen to your podcast, where she talks about the father and mother of environmental justice, Dr. Robert Bullard and a Hazel M. Johnson. I'd like to tell you a little bit more detail about those people and then turn it over to Leah to say more. So when I started my interest in environmentalism, it was in the late 60s, early 70s, and Lois Gibb was the Caucasian superhero in Niagara Falls. She was the high school science teacher who I interviewed. And then I interviewed the man, Michael Brown, who made her famous in his book on Love Canal. And, and yet that was predated by Hazel Johnson from the 1955 Black environmental movement. And I had no clue to that. So in other words, her book goes deeper and wider, not just wider, but deeper in the past. Do you want to say a little bit about 
who Hazel Johnson is and Robert Bullard, Leah? Absolutely. And I thought it was really fun to have kind of a quote unquote mother and a father of environmental justice because learning about environmentalism in school, you kind of look at specific figures like John Muir, etc., And I wanted people to also have that association when it came to the environmental justice movement, because I think sometimes that really is a helpful learning tool for students. So in particular, Hazel M. Johnson, I'm so fascinated by her because she's often not really written about in environmental textbooks at all. But she was just a woman in Chicago who had no environmental experience. But she started realizing that a lot of people in her community, including her husband, We're getting all sorts of forms of cancers and other heart disease and things like that at what she suspected were alarming rates. So when she investigated, she found that her neighborhood was built on top of toxic waste and other things. And she defined this term called a toxic donut that her community and so many other communities that were similar to hers that were lower income and primarily black neighborhoods that were formerly redlined were surrounded by a toxic donut of waste of landfills, highways running through their neighborhoods, and sometimes even buried radioactive waste, etc. So she was one of the first people who really made a stir about this. And I think something that's really cool in her work, and then also Dr. Robert Bullard, who formalized that hunch that she had and produced the first study on toxic waste and race and really made the field of environmental justice, is that they also were really just faith-based people that spoke about this amongst their churches. And I think, again, that's something that's really cool because in the environmental or scientific community, sometimes people do try to separate faith advocacy from you know, science. However, these are people that were mobilizing in their churches and talking about it in their sermons and seeing how they could transform their communities to be better for people and planet. So I think it's just a great story. And I really want people to know the names of people like Hazel Ann Johnson and Dr. Robert Bullard, just like they know the names of people like John Muir, because they've done such a beautiful job and I want their legacies to be remembered. I think that community work, those community leaders, it's essential. Sometimes we think we've advanced. We have like the EPA. We believe that the legislation that's put in place is all we need to protect ourselves. But then we see that these things like, and it is often on these lines of racial divides where, you know, lead paint was outlawed years ago and yet it wasn't replaced. And it's often in marginalized communities and it vastly affects people and children of color. And and it causes all sorts of developmental disorders. And likewise with the water and just access to clean water, we still see PFAS that are in the water system and, and many other pollutants. So it's those community leaders who really get the word out and put pressure on legislators, but also to make sure that the legislation is being followed up. Mia, I wanted to bring up another personal story about how in reading Leah's text, both as an applicant and then after she gave a talk at the New York State Writers Institute. So I remember... Before I met my lovely wife 46 years ago, having a shaping event where I went with my wealthy girlfriend to New York City. She was from California and her father owned a very large farm in the Napa Valley with hundreds of migrant workers on it. In fact, Ron Corona was found buried and slaughtered on her property. And when that was being discovered, I was with the mother who was escaping the heat by coming to the opera. 
in New York City. So being in that circle of people in New York City, they went to shop for some luxury leather items. And right in front of me, because I was born poor, so I had never been into some of these fancy honeys. And a policeman came in and said, everyone stop where you are. There's been a robbery. And I had never experienced robbery, let alone robbery in a very fancy luxury store. So a series of policemen are interviewing everybody. I'm very nervous, probably even sweating. And the two women, my girlfriend and her wealthy mother, are completely calm because they know that they're privileged and protected. I'm worried because I feel out of place. And a black woman comes in and chewing gum. And in my prejudice, this is what Leah talks about in her book, Systemic Prejudice, Systemic Racism. I say to myself, oh good, they got her. When actually the woman chewing the gum was the detective on the street who found the woman with the $5,000 purse running out of the luxury goods store. I tell that story because on page 65 of Leah's book, she really opened my eyes about white privilege and male privilege as it deals with shopping in the everyday. And she notices that, and all of these things rang true to me when I was reading it. I am reasonably sure that in my neighborhoods, everyone will treat me pleasantly and neutrally, right? I've left the tough neighborhoods of my youth where I lived by the railroad tracks. And I realized for 30 years, I never questioned where I was walking in the wealth of Saratoga. She also brings out in terms of systemic racism and bias. And I was reading this while I was writing my new book where I'm writing for the first time in my life about prejudice. And Leah notices that people like me could go shopping alone most of the time and we're fairly well assured that no one's going to harass us like the detectives that harass the woman who took the purse. Not only that, she talks about how you could be reasonably assured that no one in charge will question your right to be in stores. And so I found that when I began this book, I, I was thinking I was gonna read about dismantling the power structure that causes pollution and environmental distress. But what I came to realize is I gained more insights into social prejudice itself and how embedded it is. And Leah, can you talk a little bit about UCLA? Because I think it's a good story about how now your book, because of its coherence and its immediacy, is being adopted for freshmen. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I think something I haven't really shared publicly is that coming from the Midwest, I grew up in Missouri, UCLA was my dream school that I wanted to go to. And I didn't go, but it's so cool. And I'm so amazed because UCLA picked the IE book for their common experience reader. So they select a book every year to give out to their freshman cohort, and then they weave it into the curriculum. And then we also have a series of events. They just hosted an environmental justice concert, which was really cool. But I thought it was amazing, and especially as a first-time writer, and I wrote the book when I was maybe 25 or 26 years old. It's really just such a dream because this is the purpose that I wrote the book for. So people who are starting their environmental education journey could learn about the intersections of social justice and environmentalism, regardless of what they're studying. So that was just, yeah, I'm still really amazed. It's a great honor, Leah. I remember Kurt Vonnegut was honored at the end of his career as a great writer by Cornell freshman needing to read his book in common. I just want to make sure that me as audience understand this because there's so many different universities that are listening to her podcast. So every freshman at UCLA will be reading the book. 
Yeah, so every freshman this year, which is really exciting, will be reading the book. So interwoven into the curriculum, and then it was given to all of the students. And there's book clubs and different things like that around campus. And then just other learning so people can understand environmental justice. So a lot of speakers. That is tremendous. And what a community gesture and civic thing to have a book as a bridge between all these different UCLA students. Absolutely. It's such, such a dream. Thousands of them, correct? Correct, around like 5,000 or so. So life is full of learning, and I, I wondered if you could tell people a little bit more about how you founded Green Girl Leah and how you have articles placed in mainstream outlets like Vogue or Harper's Bazaar and W Magazine and even Paltrow's Goop. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of being mainstream and magnified so fast in life? Yeah. So I created a blog. It's called Green Gralia. I back when I was in college. And again, I really just wanted to show people my life and what I was up to as an environmental science student at the time. And what happened pretty unintentionally is that there were other Black women or just women in general that said, hey, I'm a woman or I'm a Black woman that also really cares about the earth or I'm someone who wants to explore this. So as I just posted what I was doing in my everyday life, kind of cultivated this community and realized the potential for social media to be a representation tool. So even if they weren't seeing these stories and documentaries yet, which is definitely changing, or in books, they could log on to Instagram and kind of find that representation, which I think is one of the beautiful parts of social media. You can find really niche communities. So I've been doing that since around 2016, 2017. And I also have been writing and pitching articles since then as well. And I think it's really important for me not just to preach to the choir of environmental people that already understand what's going on in the world. So that's why I really wanted to pitch publications like Vogue. And I've written, I think, I don't know why I could write more, but I like this. I've written one article for Vogue since 2020, and it's kind of just a diary entry of kind of what I've been thinking. And I love coming back to those pieces. And if anyone's curious, you can go to my Vogue profile and you'll see what I was thinking in 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023 and how my advocacy has kind of evolved. I've also written for publications like Marie Claire and even Playboy. And in each of these, I'm talking about environmental justice because I really just want to reach as many people as possible. And this year, I actually did my first investigative piece with Vogue and I went to Coachella, the music festival, to look at their sustainability practices and how they were handling the amount of waste and also incorporating environmental education into the programming, which was really fun. So I'm really just trying to meet people where they're at and talk about environmentalism in a way that's really accessible to them. Leah, do you think we can help the listener and also help ourselves by collecting some of your thoughts about modifying capitalism and the fate of capitalism and how it's reshaped the world. So for about two centuries, most of the people who thought about capitalism thought it could boil down to a competition between price and quality. And, you know, the two famous people who talked about the quality aspects were called Duran, a Frenchman, and Deming, an American. And what I have found is in the last 30 years, environmentalism has allowed us to begin to think of a new form of capitalism that I call social response capitalism. And social response capitalism is when leaders can compete both on price and quality in generating a better car or a better computer or a better design of a home. 
but also for social needs like the pandemic or new forms of energy like EV infrastructure, or even better cars themselves like Toyota made, or better, more efficient homes like train technologies is now making. Now, the problem I have, Lee, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is once you begin to think about capitalism as able to be reformed so that it's socially responsive, a lot of people get confused. Is that socialism? And in addition, the other issue I'm interested in your thoughts of, I don't think it's socialism. I think it's a more just capitalism. But I'm also interested if you have thoughts about what kinds of leaders should run these new types of corporations, because it can't be the same kind of speculative capitalism in the past. Do you have any thoughts to share with us about how we can make a dent in redirecting capitalism and what kinds of leaders should be managing those firms? Absolutely. I definitely feel like you are the expert when it comes to all things capitalism. So it would be great to hear your thoughts. But I think the best way I could chime in, because as like a self-identifying democratic socialist, I don't really fear socialism too much. So I won't talk about that too much. However, I spent about two years of my career working at Patagonia headquarters on their PR and communications team right before venturing on my own and starting Intersectional Environmentalist. And I think they're a really good example of what some people call conscious capitalism. So it's not necessarily doing away with it altogether, but trying to infuse some sort of ethics around sustainability and social good into the process. So what I learned about Patagonia in particular as a case study is the practice of wealth redistribution, or you can kind of call it philanthropy or whatever you want, but they really go above and beyond just 1% of their profits for the planet. They have created a network of environmental organizations that every store of theirs can donate to, every employee of theirs can donate to, and they regularly give a lot of funding to empower grassroots environmental organizations to capacity build. In addition to that, I mean, there's a couple different things when you're talking about conscious capitalism that need to be considered. So the supply chain in particular needs to be as ethical as possible. Garment workers or the people that are building materials should be compensated, shouldn't be surrounded by like toxic chemicals, et cetera, should have safe and fair working conditions. So that's like the supply chain and the material side of things needs to be as you know sustainable as possible. And then in addition to that, I think corporations definitely have a responsibility to give back to grassroots environmental organizations because I think corporations can sometimes even play a more immediate role than the government can. So for example, a federal environmental grant has a lot of hoops and hurdles to jump through for organizations to receive that funding. However, a corporation can pretty easily give away funding to other organizations or movements like really urgently. So I would say that's one thing that I learned at Patagonia that I think other corporations could implement into their strategy, like being an ally to environmental movements. But I would say you are way more well-versed in this subject. I think what's important is that you have a 40, 50-year running pad, you know, that your jet is taking off and there's a long flight pad. So it's important for people to hear your opinion about the reshaping of capitalism. Another thought I had to pursue with you has to do with how generous you are in the book of existing social movements. If you could talk a little bit about the inclusiveness in the book. So for example, you have passages about eliminating Asian hate. Could you talk a little bit about the kinds of networks you've now established? both through the book and through your work? Yeah, some a term that I learned about while doing my research was called lateral oppression. So lateral oppression is when communities that are facing an injustice 
kind of compete with other communities that are also facing an injustice. So for example, if we said like lower income white communities in the United States, kind of comparing their struggle to, I don't know, say like black civil rights activists or something like that. So instead of coalition building, saying I'm oppressed, therefore your oppression is less valid. Or for example, in the United States during the Stop Asian Hate movement that occurred around the same time as like the movement for Black lives, there were some people in both communities that were wondering, like, should I be a part of this? I'm already worried about my own community, et cetera, and kind of comparing struggles. So I think it's really important to fight against lateral oppression. And that's part of the reason why there's a rainbow on the book as a throwback to the Rainbow Coalition, because I think there's more that we have in common. So even if lower income white folks who are experiencing environmental injustice partnered with you know, indigenous activists that have their own specific environmental injustices and if urban communities that are facing environmental injustices could kind of team up and coalition build and then really just hear each other. We don't have to compare our struggles. They're all really valid. And I think a mantra that I try to say over and over again to motivate me to do this work is that, you know, my heart is big enough, my love is big enough, and my empathy is big enough for it all. I don't have to choose and have a scarcity mindset and say, I am only going to advocate for the liberation of Black folks, because that to me isn't advocating for justice for all people and the planet. And I can show up as an ally for the Stop Asian Hate Movement or for poor white folks in mountain communities in the United States that are, you know, drinking fracking fluid in their water and just seeing what our common struggle is and uniting together, I think is really, really important. Excellent. I, I remember I was 13 when Martin Luther King delivered his I've been to the mountain top speech and it was the result of a strike in Memphis, Tennessee. Can you tell us how you convinced the publisher to do that throwback. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, I think I'm such a font and design nerd, and I was really thankful my publisher allowed me to do this. But even the font, and there's a note in the back of the book about this, it's a font called Martin, and it was developed by the only Black-owned foundry or font maker in the United States called Vocal Type. Wow. So if you look at the I Am Man posters that were seen throughout the civil rights movement, that's the font that's on my book. And those posters were also used at Martin Luther King Jr.'s last talk that he gave, which was kind of an emerging environmental justice protest for worker rights. I believe in, I need to look at the specific year. But yeah, I really wanted to have that because it's a throwback to that I Am Man poster that was seen at one of the first environmental kind of worker rights protests. So I wanted to have that in the book to pay. And then also the rainbow. Again, there's a lot of different reasons, but I was really inspired by the Rainbow Coalition. And then also when I think about intersectionality and like everybody coming together, that really looks like a rainbow to me. And then also I think something that I try to carry throughout my work is just joy and playfulness because I could have had like a really dark and scary book because a lot of the content of the book is really heavy, but just design wise, I wanted it to feel as approachable as possible. And if people were going on a journey of self-exploration and learning about injustice, I wanted the book to feel really light so that there's, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and that they knew that another world is possible and they don't walk away just feeling defeated. Well said. Thank you, Leah. That light and hopefulness and inclusivity really comes across. I thought it was interesting also that you had worked for Patagonia, you know, because 
traditionally, and I think that people of color have been, they're not felt as welcome in the environmental space. And I was curious about how you found your space in that. Some people have talked to me about like reclaiming space for people of color in the natural world, or even being a part of that, you know, the mountain climbing or all these kind of, you know, the joys of the natural world, not just the the injustices and activism. Yeah, I am. Um, I really want to write about some of these experiences because working at Patagonia was so funny. I just graduated and I was hired as an assistant to like three people. It definitely should have been three different jobs, but I was a PR assistant, a comms assistant, and I was also an assistant to the director of philosophy, who is the founder of Patagonia's nephew, Vincent Stanley. And then I was an assistant to Rick Ridgway, who's best friends with the founder of Patagonia and is this like legendary rock climber that went on all of these adventures with Tom Frost, who founded the North Face, and then also Yvonne, who founded Patagonia. And in another world, like this typical kind of white mountain climbing environmental world, people would have been like, oh my God, these are legends. But part of the reason my hiring was so funny is I had no idea who these people were. I didn't know anything about rock climbing. So that I I got to be in these rooms with the people who created this organization. And then I just got to see them as people, like people who just really liked rock climbing and wanted to make clothes for their friends. And I think that was really important for me. And also Yeah, it was incredible because when I decided to leave Patagonia, which was a really difficult decision, I was being cheered on by Rick Ridgway, my boss, who was a rebel back in his days climbing the mountains. And he was like, do what you got to do. So that was such a blessing and such a great sign off. And it was great having conversations with them as well and learning from each other. of, Hey, this is what I thought my dream company was going to be. But Rick, this is actually your dream company for white mountain climbers. And now I need to go off and try to make a space for people who look like me that feels really similar. So I'm so glad I had that experience. But it's also funny because that experience made me realize really early in my career that, you know, another world is possible and I can create a similar space for people of my community. And then I also learned a lot. Like I went surfing for the first time. I went rock climbing for the first time. I didn't like any of it and realized that a walk around my neighborhood is just fine in terms of my environmental exploration. Yeah, I brought terror into my own daughter's world when I encouraged her to go surfing with me. When she was only eight years old and it took her two years to tell me, I went and told mom, this was horrible, dad. I was going to hit my head at any moment. And that as a caring father, I had no clue that I was terrifying my little daughter. I grew up on the beach. That's why it was so natural to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great experience. And I don't know, just smiling about it now, I think it's definitely something I'd love to write about at some point. Well, I'm sure there'll be a lot of great books coming out. So Leah, in closing, you know, as you think about the next generation, this beauty and wonder of the natural world and what you would like young people to know, preserve and remember. It's a great question. I guess I want young people to know, I know it sounds like a cliche, but progress is better than perfection. I think with environmental advocacy, sometimes people feel like it's like an all or nothing thing and it gets really intense, but I want to show people there's so many ways to participate. So whether that's, you know, shopping at your local farmer's market, honestly, supporting your local economy is one of the most sustainable things you can do, even if like your friend is making soap in her dorm room. Hopefully it's safe, but like supporting your friends and their businesses, that's really the most sustainable thing you can do going thrift shopping 
something and then just getting really curious about what's going on in your community, looking up, okay, do people even 15 minutes down the highway from me also have the same access to healthy food or, you know, whatever it might be and trying to get involved in any way that makes sense to you. So if that's, you know, liking and sharing things on social media, donating, volunteering, protesting, whatever it is, I just want young people to know that they are so important. The skills that they have are really important and can be applied to the movements that they care about. So just to show up exactly as they are. And yeah, it's going to take all of us to you know, make sure our planet is as healthy as possible for people and the planet. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm just very thankful, Leah. Your work gives us hope for the future. And thank you for this show with Mia Funk. Yes. Thank you, Leah Thomas, for championing uh, diversity for the benefit of all. Uh, when we include marginalized and historically ignored communities, we bring in new perspectives and build upon intergenerational knowledge. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and Business and Society. Again, thank you, Leah. Yeah, thanks so much. And so excited to following what you do next. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode.